good morning, church. What a weekend, eh? Been a busy church over the last couple of days to launch into Advent and into the Christmas season. And actually, just right from the onset, I wanted to say a special thank you to everyone who made Friday night happen. We opened up our church to the community for our annual tree lighting. Um, I was told that we had about 400 people through, mostly from the community, and they played games, they did crafts, you know, their kids had fun, they sang songs, and they also heard about Jesus. So praise God for that. Thank you to everyone who served. The other thing that struck me just this morning, before we get into our passage, uh, it was actually at the 8.30 service, we announced that Brock's ordination is coming up on December 10th. And, you know, I've always had that date in my mind. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, December 10th. But then I was like, man, this is December 3rd. Right? That's only a week away. And so Brock's upcoming ordination, it's like one of those paradoxical things where um, it feels like it's coming up so quickly, and yet it feels like it's always been. You know what I mean? And that's the way that it should feel when someone's being ordained. The church ought to ordain the called, not call the ordained. Anyway, a sermon for another day. Let me just say this. Um, if you are able please come next Sunday to Brock's ordination. And more importantly, pray for him and pray for Amanda. Would you do that? That was not resounding. Would you do that? All right, thank you so much. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for your word written, your word written that shows us the beauty of your word incarnate, Jesus. Would you do that this morning by the power of your spirit? Give us eyes to behold him afresh, to repent, to follow him, to be born again. We pray this to the glory of his name. Amen. All right, Bible's open to John chapter 1. The beginning. Well, this is a season of beginnings, isn't it? Today's the beginning of Advent. Um, for most of us, it feels like the beginning of the Christmas season. I know, I know that that's liturgically gauche, but it's just a fact, right? You go to the malls, and this is like the beginning of all the nuttiness. It's all happening right now. It's also the beginning of this brief sermon series. We're going to put the series through Acts on hold until the new year. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to preach our way through the first half of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Even our Gospel reading this morning starts with the words, in the beginning. And so we're going to spend these next couple of weeks working through this chapter, and our prayer is that through this chapter, called the prologue to John's Gospel, our prayer is that we will see and know Jesus. Amen? Now, bear in mind that it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John set out to write this account about the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He was the youngest out of the disciples. He was the only one to go on to die of natural causes as an old man, albeit in exile on the island of Patmos, where he then wrote, the book that we call Revelation. If you move through John's gospel, you'll discover that he had a nickname. Do you remember what it was? 
He was the beloved disciple. And I always kind of struggled with that when I read it. I'm like, really, Jesus, playing favorites? Like, I thought you weren't supposed to do that. But it just dawned on me a little while ago. I don't think that John was the beloved disciple because Jesus loved him the most. I think John was the beloved disciple because John loved Jesus the most. This is John. In Matthew chapter 4, we're told that as Jesus was walking along one day, he saw Simon Peter and Andrew who were tending to their nets, and he walked alongside them and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you remember that? And then he walked a little bit further down the beach and he encountered two other brothers, the sons of Zebedee. One of them was named James, the other one was named John. And Jesus said, follow me. And immediately, James and John dropped everything, left their father and the family business, and followed him. That's John. John is also one of the most prolific authors that we have captured in the New Testament. Think about all of the books of the Bible that he wrote. We have the Gospel of John, which we're looking at today. What else do we have? 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. This is John. Well, before we get into our verses this morning, and I want to try to get as far as the end of verse 5. We'll see how it goes. Um, I want us to just enter into this study by considering what was the purpose for which John wrote this gospel? To say it another way, what is the desired outcome, right? What did John have in mind? What did he want to accomplish? Now, if you are doing an arts degree at a university in Canada right now and you're doing literary criticism or maybe you have children or grandchildren who are doing that, they do this sort of thing with texts all the time. They approach a literary work and they say, what was the meaning of this text? What was the intent? And they're given tools that are called postmodern criticism. Postmodern criticism comes from a starting point of subjectivity. Here's what I mean by that. Your children, grandchildren, or you yourself, you're in university, what you're told is that a literary work or a text, its meaning is whatever the reader thinks or feels as they are reading it, and especially in an extended community. Let me say that a different way. Postmodern criticism says if you want to know what a text means, then it means whatever it means to you. Now, hands up if you know that that's really not a good way to approach the Bible. Amen? If you want to be a good Bible reader, you have to begin with the commitment that the text has meaning in itself. That the Bible has meaning whether you find it, acknowledge it, accept it, or not. It's not subjectivity, it's objective truth. You and I never come to the biblical text and assign meaning to it. Let me make it practical. Um, 
if you ever want to see like steam coming out of my ears and my lid blowing off, it's the next time that we're talking about a Bible passage, say something like, to me it means. Nobody cares what it means to you. What does it mean, right? Because we don't believe that the Bible is subject to your assigning of meaning. It has inherent meaning. We, we believe that that meaning is rooted not in the reader, but in the author's intent. Okay, that's authorial intent. And, and it just seems like common sense. John puts stylus to parchment, and he writes the Gospel of John because he intended to communicate something to his audience, to his readers. And it's incumbent on us then to roll up our sleeves, do the hard work, and not project our own meaning onto it, but say, what was the big idea that John wanted to communicate? So how are we going to get at that? With those commitments in mind. Have you guys ever read Stephen Covey's famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Yeah, a couple of hands up. Yeah, it's okay. It's not confession, right? It's, it's common wisdom and grace. Do you remember what the number two thing was? The number, the number two habit of highly effective people. It was begin with the end in mind. And so if you want to know what John had in mind when he started out writing this gospel, I want you with your Bible still open to now turn from John chapter 1 to John chapter 20. Would you do that for a moment? John chapter 20. As we begin this study with the end in mind. John 20 verses 30 to 31. What was the author's intent? What was John's intent? What was the Holy Spirit's intent as he was inspiring John to write this gospel? Well, we don't have to guess. It says here at the end of the gospel, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's what John's saying. He tips his hand. He shows us. He tells us explicitly what his purpose was in writing these accounts. He says, look, there were so many things that Jesus said and did. There's no way possible that I could have included them all in this one account. So I chose these carefully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Everything that's written in this gospel is all rowing and paddling in the same direction. It's all moving towards this singular purpose so that you when you read these would believe believe that Jesus is the Christ he is the son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name so look, consider the implications of this bold claim that John makes at the end of his gospel. John 
is saying that life is found only in believing on Jesus. The only way to find true life is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ. They say, well, that's silly, R.D. I know a lot of people with heartbeats and, you know, regular respiratory patterns who don't believe in Jesus. And, well, that's the point. John here is making a clear distinction. He's saying the only way that any human being can actually have true life, life that's more than just going through the motions, the only way that anyone can ever be fully, truly alive is if God in Jesus Christ has granted them a new life, caused them to be born again, caused them to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. Then you'll have life. Look, think about it. Every single human being that is alive, they are alive in this way that is not full. Okay? That's, they've been born, they have a heartbeat, they have a breathing pattern, they're living, they're experiencing things. But that is life that from the moment of birth is on a trajectory that leads to the grave and to death. What John is saying is, he's saying, I've compiled all of these accounts of Jesus so that you would read them. And when you read them, you would come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. And then believing in that, you are now born again into a new life. And this life will not lead to the grave. This is life that leads to life, to life, to life. There is no life to be found in any other belief, pursuit, philosophy, or religion. Every other attempt at finding life outside of belief on the Lord Jesus Christ is an empty promise that overpromises and underdelivers. What are some of the promises that our world tells you about where life will ultimately be found that are lies. Can you think of any? Well, the one that I thought of was there's this secular narrative that says your life will be fulfilled, your life will be meaningful, your life will be full through the accumulation of stuff. Stuff that's better than the stuff that you have right now. Go pursue it. Stuff that's better than the stuff that your neighbors have. That's where life is to be found. Well, man, you don't have to spend much time on that six and a half mile an hour treadmill before you discover that it's empty and hollow and meaningless. There's no life to be found in that. Or what about the secular narrative that says true life is to be found in the self? It sounds something like this. You will discover a full, perfect, great life to the extent to which you discover how truly wonderful you really are. When you find that light that is within, 
that's going to be your path to life. Now, I don't know about you guys, but from lived experience, myself, hearing about other people's stories, the deeper I go into myself, the more I discover my own depravity. There's no life to be found in that. The deeper we go into ourself, all we find is that we have these convoluted and twisted up and perverted desires and affections. That doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 12, he was talking about this. He was talking about people who think that life is going to be found in the pursuit of self. And he says to them, John chapter 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here's what Jesus said. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Look, the world tells you that true life is found in the pursuit of self. Pleasure, self-interest. But the counterintuitive truth of the gospel is that if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. If you cling to your life, you'll never find life at all. Life, Jesus says, is actually found in self Denial. That's why the call of Jesus is to repent and to bow your knee to him. You got to die. See, when you, when you come to Jesus, who is life, the process of coming to him can actually feel like death. And in one sense, it kind of is, because when you repent of trusting in yourself, that old man, that old woman, the person that you used to be, has to die. So that a new life can be given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, look, unless the grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it can't bring forth fruit. But if it does, if you die to yourself and your own selfish interests, then God will make you alive together in Christ. True life. Claim to your life, you're going to lose it. Give up your life for Jesus' sake and you'll find it. Let's dive into this passage. But as we do, remember that the broad purpose that John is driving at here, John wants you to read this prologue and he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing to have life in his name. Look at verse 1. In the beginning. Now, maybe you would have expected John to begin his account of Jesus' life with the events surrounding his birth, right? That's what Matthew and Luke did. Or perhaps you'd expect Jesus to begin the account of, or you'd, you'd expect um, John to begin the account of Jesus' life with the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Like what Mark did. You know, Mark began the account of Jesus with the baptism of Jesus. 
you know, the account where John the Baptist baptizes him, the heavens open up, the spirit descends, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice says, This is my son. But not John. John does not begin his account with a government census or angels or shepherds or wise men. John begins in the beginning. Like the beginning. Like Genesis 1. And here is one of the most staggering claims of Christmas. It's this. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Here's the staggering claim of Christmas. The babe in the manger on that first Christmas morning is the creator of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. Folks, that's a bold claim. But that's why John begins with the beginning. Look, far too often we slip into these patterns of approaching Christmas as something saccharine and sentimental and traditional. You know, the warm, fuzzy feelings. And it's all too easy to do so. It's a wonderful story. A young mom, a baby, a manger, a couple of donkeys, maybe a camel, I don't know, right? Gives you all those warm feelings. But John wants you to know this. He wants you to know that it's so much more than just sentimentalism. The manger in Bethlehem on that day held the one who was the spoken word by which God created everything that exists. Let's say this a different way. In the language of Genesis 1, when the Lord God speaks and says, let there be light, those living, active words are the Lord Jesus Christ the babe in the manger. He is the precondition for all reality. And that's the remarkable fact that rescues Christmas from mere sentimentalism. So, Christian man or woman, this Christmas season, behold the babe in the manger anew. See him with fresh eyes. He is Plato and Aristotle's first cause. You know, there's um, people who think a lot about the creation or the Big Bang or where did everything come from. They talk about the fact that everything through causation, you can go upstream far enough until you eventually reach the point where there has to be a first cause. John would say to you, In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the first cause. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, so you're reading along and you're like tracking along. 
Okay, he's in the beginning, he's the creator, he's God. And then you read John say, he was in the beginning with God. And you think, whoa, 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 hold on a second, with God? Wouldn't that imply that he's not God? He's like with, alongside of God? Well, this is where precision and context really matter. Look back at the way verse 1 ends. The word was with God, and the word was God. So when John in the next breath in verse 2 says that he was in the beginning with God, he's not saying that there was God and then there was Jesus who is kind of alongside of him as some kind of agent in creation. What he's saying is from before the beginning, Jesus has been co-equal of the same substance with God. The babe in the manger is God veiled in human flesh. And here's the point. John begins this account from the beginning because he wants you to know that the baby in the manger, Jesus the Christ, is God the Son so that you may believe in him and have life. Look, if you want to have life, if you want to experience a Christmas miracle, then life-giving belief begins here with this point. Jesus is God from before the beginning. Not merely a babe in the manger as some kind of archetype for the evilness of humanity and the goodness that exists out there in the cosmos. He is God in human flesh. What's your favorite Christmas carol? Can you think of one? I can think of several. Probably one of my favorites is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You guys like that one? Who wrote it? Do you know? Charles Wesley, that's right. Can you guess what century? 18th century, that's right, 1700s. And one of my favorite lines, I think this hymn contains the best incarnational theology. It's like incarnational theology 101, forget about seminary, just read this hymn. And here's what Charles Wesley said about this. He said, when you look at the babe in the manger, it is... Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. He's pleased as man with men to dwell. He's Jesus, our Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. See, that's why John grounds this account. He begins in the beginning because he wants you to know that Jesus is the creator God. In the beginning was the word. So as you head into this Christmas season, behold God. In the babe, in the manger, verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator of all things. Come to rescue his people. Come to rescue you.
Perhaps you notice that John refers to Jesus as, what does he call him? The Word. Did you notice that? And maybe you know from other Christmas sermons the Greek word that's used here. If you do, shout it out. It's the word? Logos. That's right. That's right. What does it mean? Well, at the point that John wrote this account, Greek philosophers had already spent centuries searching for the meaning of life. They were in search of some singular factor that would make sense of all the chaos that we see in creation, all the chaos that we see in our lives, the sublime creativity of humanity, the depths of our wickedness and depravity. Greek philosophers were like, there has to be one factor that can bring all of these things together and make sense of them. They called that factor that they were searching for the logos. Well, that quest still happens today in the academy. There are quantum physicists and string theorists who are searching for what they call the unified theory. The theory of everything. This one idea that will pull it all together and unlock the very essence of existence. Well, John begins this account by laying bare this truth. Jesus is not only the pre-existent Christ from before foundation, he is also the word of God, the Logos. He is the unified theory. He is the theory of everything. Well, what does that mean? There are many ways you can think about the Logos as it relates to Jesus, but I want to suggest just one of them to you this morning. Does the word Logos sound like any English word that you know? Logic. Well done. That's it exactly. To say that Jesus is the Logos of God means that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has made known to us, he has mediated, he has accommodated his divine revelation to us in a logical way in a person. He is the word of God, the Logos. If you think about it, it's impossible for our three and a half brains to ever comprehensively conceive of God, right? He's just, it's too big, it's too abstract, it's infinite. How could you ever understand him? And yet what John is saying is that in Jesus of Nazareth, the pre-existing one, the one by whom the worlds were spoken into existence, God has revealed to us what he's like in a logical way. He's made himself known. He is the Logos. And here's the second startling claim of Christmas. That God not only in Jesus creates everything, but that he wants to be known. That Jesus is the unifying theory of the universe. That the theory of everything is not an idea, but a person. Jesus is 
the very logic of God. And he's a person because God wants to be known. Friends, God wants you to know him. Not merely as an idea or as a philosophy, but as a person in a relationship. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus, John would say, is God's mediated self-disclosure made known to us in a logical, intelligible way. He is the Logos. He is the spoken word of God by which the heavens and the earth are framed and filled. He came to us on that first Christmas and he comes to us now. Verse 4. He comes to bring life. You see, this is another claim of Christmas. That life and meaning are not just arbitrarily and subjectively assigned by you. You do not give life meaning in the same way that you do not give the Bible meaning. Instead, you find meaning in life. And if you're a Christian person, what you discover is you do not even find meaning. Meaning finds you because meaning is the logos. It's the person of Jesus. And he seeks you out and he finds you and he saves you and he rescues you. He gives you life that has a purpose. Jesus is the creator and the logos. Let's finish with verse 5. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what we're doing here is we're building out a picture of Jesus from John's prologue. And remember the purpose of John's entire gospel. He's written all of this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing you'd have life in his name. John has already said that God, that Jesus is God the creator. And now he's said that Jesus is God made knowable and known. The logos, the logic of God. And here in verse 4, he introduces another metaphor. Do you see it? Light. says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 4, in him was life. What John is painting here with this picture of light, he says, in him was life, and that life was light. What he's saying is that the life that Jesus brings to you is so categorically different from the life that you lived before Jesus, that it is comparable to the difference between pitch black darkness and light. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying that everything that you used to call life before Jesus Christ is in fact darkness. 
You know the funny thing about darkness? You can find yourself in the dark and you never actually notice darkness until the lights are turned on. You just, your eyes become acclimated to it. You adjust to it. You live in the darkness, groping around, and you never really notice how dark it is until a light is put on. Well, the same is true for your Christian life. If you're a Christian man or woman, you most likely look back at your life before Christ and you'd say, man, all those things that I thought were life-giving and were so awesome, they were actually just groping around in the dark, bonking my head and bonking my toe. But Jesus has brought me life because his life is the light. That's the light that Jesus is. And it shines brightest in the darkness of our present day. Verse 5, he says, This is a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot, has not, overcome it. Now you'll notice in different English translations, if you have several Bibles at home, that it sometimes translates this word differently. In some translations it says, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other translations it'll say, and the darkness has not understood it. But both are true, because the original Greek word has the semantic range of both the darkness cannot apprehend it, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Friends, both things are true, and we see them played out in our world today. The darkness all around us can never extinguish the light of Christ. It can't apprehend it. But so many people cannot understand the light. You know, you're a Christian, you look at it and you say, well, how is it that there are so many people out there and they're not drawn to the light of Christ? Well, the fact of the matter is there are so many who are living in such darkness and given over to so much darkness in their own life that they can't even understand the light of Christ. The good news is that Jesus is alive. The light shines into the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. He is from the beginning, and he is the logic, the logos of God. This is the Christmas miracle. You know, I was talking to a, a young man just yesterday who called me, and he was all fired up. This is a guy who's been kicking the tires on Jesus for the last little while. You know, he's been sniffing around the edges and drawn to the moral teachings of Jesus and the ethical teachings of Jesus. He sees the truth of Jesus. But he called me yesterday morning and he was all excited. He didn't know I was preaching on this passage. And he told me, he said, he goes, I don't know how to explain it, R.D., but Jesus is the Logos of God. And that truth has just moved from my head to my heart. I feel it. I know it, and it's true. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overtake it. Friends, John wrote this account so that you would have life. 
Listen, this Christmas season, you've been living in the darkness far too long. You've been living a life that feels hollow and meaningless and mundane. And God in Jesus Christ wants to give you life. It, believe, it begins by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's not a belief that you can ever think your way into rationally. That's something that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you even now. So if you have even the slightest inkling, the smallest amount of faith, you're saying, man, that's something that I want to believe. That's evidence that God the Holy Spirit is at work in you. He is pursuing you. He is giving you a new life. Repent. Put your faith and your trust and your hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In your word, we see Jesus. I pray, God, that this Christmas season, each and every one of us would behold him afresh and anew. That you would jar us from the autopilot of the cute baby and the sweet manger and the young mom and all that stuff. That this light would shine into our darkness and grant us life. We pray this in your name. Amen.